2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Loris Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Dedicated students with something to say are featured in the film Artscape 2021. The project was created by Georgia State University students using Atlanta street art as a stage for a mix of spoken word and theatrical scenes on subjects including the pandemic, social inequality, and the Black Lives Matter movement. The film will air on our TV station, ATL PBA, this Saturday. And we'll hear about Artscape today from GSU professor of practice in acting and directing Susan G. Reed and actor Nadine Banton Brown. First, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is returning to live performance this weekend in Symphony Hall. Conductor Robert Spano, the ASO Music Director Laureate, will be on the podium to conduct a thrilling program of music by Beethoven. He joins us now via Zoom. Maestro, welcome back to City Lights.
3: Great to be with you, Lois.
2: This is a very special return to Symphony Hall. And I was hoping you could tell us why you chose the pieces on this particular program.
3: I think it was
2: as simple a
3: thought as wanting to do the most symbolic, iconic, (laughs) fundamental cornerstone repertoire that identifies who we are imaginable. And that's Beethoven. And it's certainly both Fives, the Fifth Symphony and the Piano Concerto. The return to the hall, the fact that we'll be together in the hall again, it just felt right to do something so familiar and so great, so transcendental.
2: hearing this piece for the very first time, or you've heard it countless times, the piece has stunning impact. How does he achieve that?
3: I do not know. (laughs) Because you're absolutely right. We were rehearsing this morning. And how many times have we played the 5th symphony of beethoven together i really don't know anymore so many and it felt brand new it felt like a, a fresh exploration like the piece was as vital and as relevant and as alive as as when the ink was wet on the page
2: it's it's astonishing and yet he does it so brilliantly and efficiently i i read something that The music critic Alex Ross wrote, There's a cosmos in the first four notes. Would you guide us through how those first four notes form a unity throughout the entire piece?
3: Perhaps that's one of Beethoven's greatest gifts is to create with remarkable economy something that catches our attention and defines itself with its profile. He's not the greatest writer of melodies in the world he's not the greatest contrapuntist in the world he's not the greatest orchestrator in the world there's so many things about beethoven that well why what how does he achieve such enduring results that that we are we gravitate to the the greatness of the message after all this time and i i think it's the, it's that uncanny gift of creating something that has such strong character and profile and message that is unmistakable, and we can't forget it.
2: It sticks. The essence of the piece is conveyed in those first four notes. And listening to the fifth, it seems there is a dramatic scenario or a narrative behind the work although we know Beethoven didn't include one, but the way the piece moves from darkness to light, triumph for adversity, do you have the feeling this was supremely intentional?
3: Oh, I do. There's no mistake about it. He definitely creates that trajectory. And he wrote enough about it, spoke enough about it, that even though there's no explicit program associated with the piece. There was a personal one. We know that that was there. And even if we didn't, the dramatic trajectory, let alone the musical trajectory of the piece, is so clearly one of triumph through adversity.
2: You know, Robert, I remember when you conducted Fidelio, we were talking about what a brilliant dramatist Beethoven was. And brilliant dramatist, you think Verdi, there are many other names that come to mind before him, but that really comes through in this ongoing theme he has of writing works that begin with such fierce intensity, tragic in overtone, but there's this light at the end. And maybe that is one of the
3: other qualities of him, of his music, that makes it so enduring, is the incredible optimism that's so often there. his life was knowing what grief he faced and personal trials he had to overcome. There must be something about that quality of optimism, that quality of hope that keeps us listening to him over all the centuries now.
2: Do you know how advanced his hearing impairment was when he wrote this work?
3: I'm not the best expert but i know it was certainly well on its way Uh, the impairment was well on its way because that starts already earlier and what a strange uh, fact of of musical history of human history that this greatest of composers lost the sense that links to his art i mean it's just astonishing
2: And that interior world, that interior sound world that he was able to create and convey for the rest of us. I was hoping you could take us from the third movement marked scherzo, which means joke in Italian. And typically in this era, the third movement, the scherzo, was, if not lighthearted, then dance-like in character, not so here. How would you describe the third movement? I think maybe one of the most
3: salient features of it is how varied it is in mood. even Marshall. And then there's also the bucolic nature of the trio that really has an affinity with aspects of the sixth symphony. It's interesting that he presented five and six together in his life. And so in this relatively short movement, and when you think about it, the fifth symphony itself is relatively short relative to his other symphonies. And yet we travel just as great a distance. And in the third movement itself, which is the shortest of the four, the
2: the mood is constantly varying. And at the end of movement three, it's just astonishing in its lead up to this glorious entry into the finale. What's going on here? How does he pull that off?
3: There's a few facets that I think create that particular darkness. I have to admit, I often think of Fidelio too, because that feels like the cavernous prison at that point. (laughs) But part of it is that he moves to the particular harmony that he does and its relationship to the key of the piece. Part of it is the suspension of that harmony with the sustaining strings. And then to have underneath that, this ominous pulsing timpani. And for then it to just not quite be able to release itself from these constrictions. So it starts to try and move this way and that, and it just can't. And we stay in this place where it almost feels as if one is bound. And as you try and resist that, you can only move so much. Which then because that's sustained for more than a minute, when that's released, it's it's just explosive.
2: in returning to live performance in symphony hall i wondered if you were also sending a message with this program of works that are heroic and and do convey this sense of triumph over whatever has come before us. Am I taking this too literally, Robert? No,
3: I don't think so. That's quite intentional. (laughs) The emperor concerto is no less noble and no less optimistic. And I I, I think in a relatively self-conscious way, we wanted not to focus on the suffering that so many have endured over these last couple of years, but rather... To focus on music's power to transcend that and to heal us and to give us hope
2: long-time friend of yours and the orchestra, Garrick Olson, who will be the soloist. You've been through quite a number of concerts together.
3: Oh, it's just, it's been fantastic. Garrick Olson was my first, my, the first professional orchestra concert I ever gave was with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> and he was my soloist playing the Greek piano concerto. So I was just so lucky to get to meet him so early on in my work, in my professional work. And we've worked together ever since. He's such a giant of a musician. And he's the kind of soloist who brings a depth of understanding of the music that's far beyond the, the concerns of playing the piano. He brings a sensibility when he's playing a concerto that includes everything the orchestra's doing, that includes a a rich, deep understanding and relationship to the music of the composer. He's an extraordinary artist.
2: I think you are very well matched. We think about round numbers when we think of observances. I hesitate anniversary, to to use the word anniversary. But 20 years ago, your first concert of this season had to be drastically changed. Have you thought back on your first concert in 2001?
3: Now, here's the subconscious at work, because (laughs) this was unintentional, and I didn't realize it until this morning, actually. The program, as announced and planned, would have been Don Juan, conducted by Donald Runicles. I was meant to conduct a Mozart concerto that we put together. So the first movement of the Sinfonia Concertante for Violin and Viola the second movement of the Concerto for flute and harp, and the third movement of the Sinfonia concertante for winds. Then Donald and I would have played the Mozart two piano concerto, and then I would have conducted Till Eulenspeak. So that all went away. Donald couldn't get here at all. We needed to shift and respond to the horrifying events that were mere days old when we were set to perform. And so that program went away. We actually still did the Mozart violin, viola, flute, harp, and woodwind mix, but we did Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony, which ended up being a very cathartic and powerful instrument for us to process together the tragedy of of that time.
2: Of the 9-11 attacks.
3: Exactly. But next week, we will be performing... (laughs) Don Juan and Till Eulenspiegel (laughs) on the next week's concert. So, and I didn't, I hadn't put that together. But that was the lost program from 20 years ago. Not entirely, but those two big Strauss pieces.
2: Okay. We don't know if it's apocryphal, but the received story is Beethoven said the first four notes of his Symphony Number 5 symbolized... Fate knocking at the door. What you just described sure sounds like fate to me. <laughs> that's that's just amazing in how it relates to two decades ago.
3: Yeah, and not, it was not by design entirely. So something was at work there. It's, it's interesting because of that, of the symphony's relationship to fate. And as I've been We were discovering, we were doing, uh, there were a couple things this morning where I'm thinking, well, why didn't we do that 10 years ago (laughs) in the the Beethoven? You know, we're still discovering. It's endless. The the piece is never fixed. But the fate aspect is, uh, that's embedded in its DNA. And I've been thinking of that wonderful myth at the end of Plato's Republic, where the soldier is uh, given a glimpse into the underworld and sees that the souls wait to ask the fates to weave a particular life for them when they return and then they pass through the river as they return to life It's incredibly beautiful the tapestry of free will and and fate our relationship to destiny and our freedom of choice in relation to destiny the the symphony grapples with all of the, those mysteries so beautifully.
2: Conductor Robert Spano is the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Music Director Laureate. More information about the ASO's return to Symphony Hall is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with actor Renee Lawless. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The TV series The Haves and the Have-Nots ended this summer after a successful eight-season run on the Oprah Winfrey Network. The show was based on hometown hero Tyler Perry's 2011 play of the same name, In 2018, actor Renee Lawless, who starred as Catherine Cryer on the drama, stopped by the WABE studios to talk about this show. She began discussing the premise that one can be rich yet still miserable.
1: Basically, whether you have money or whether you don't have a lot of money, you still have the same kind of problems. You still maybe have issues with your family. You have issues with your children. You have issues with life. Some people can handle those issues differently because of their means. But, you know, you can have all the money in the world and no friends. And that's
2: something that is difficult for people who face financial strain and struggle all the time. It's very difficult for them to comprehend that because money can be a solution to everyday struggles
1: exactly and I coined a phrase a few years ago even though my character is she's a matriarch and she's kind of worth 250 million dollars but I I said you know most women could not relate to having 50 million dollars but 50 million women can relate to another woman's problems very nice and my character Catherine Cryer has her fair share of issues. Tell us more about That she is a matriarch. Um, I used Jane Wyman from Falcon Crest as my muse. It's that kind of, you know, Falcon Crest, Dallas, uh, dynasty type soap. And um, she is old money deeply rooted in tradition and very prideful as a result married to someone who pretty much probably did marry her for her money and the problems that ensues and he is a man about town and you know a rolling stone and but she not is, mick jacker oh no it's to the wonderful <laughs> john schneider he is brilliant is the role of jim crier and she is slowly kind of coming into her own. She's always been a powerful woman. But, and it, when you first met her years ago, you, you really didn't understand who she was. She was very mean, almost cold. And then you got to understand where all that came from. And now she's—everybody cheers for her. We have a clip
2: okay. to listen to from the haves and have and have-nots in this scene with one child gone and the other confessing his crimes to the district attorney— Catherine and Jim finally decide that their twisted, painful journey together is at its end.
3: Now more than ever, I I guess it's true that a mama bear will fight for her cubs.
1: Not this time. Amanda is dead, and Wyatt is out there in a confessional. And this mother is done, wiped out. I mean it. I'm done. Why don't we just let the whole thing fall apart? Hmm? Whatever happens to Wyatt, happens to Wyatt. You and I, we uh, retire, we go away. Retirement?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That would be great.
2: Divorce would be better. When you are finished shooting that, Renee, how do you get out of that intensity?
1: Well, what you don't realize, that that particular scene, we are literally having this conversation in my daughter's bedroom that has just been recently repainted because she shot herself in that bedroom. And I am sitting in there, and, and, he, and he and I, uh, Jim and I, are finally having a heart-to-heart that we have not had in a very long time. And that that conversation there would normally be screaming at one another. So uh, how do I get out of it? The beauty of our company, our cast, I call it company cast, is that we all have such a great love and respect for one another. And we're so encouraging. And the beauty of our director, Tyler Perry, lets us have that moment. He says, you know, breathe. You do the work. You prepare to go into the scene. But then once it's over, you have that moment to breathe. And as far as John and I, John Schneider, there have been many times that we've had situations, even screaming matches, that we kind of, if it's a screaming match, we do a high five at the end because we're having way (laughs) too much fun. But if it's something like that, it's usually a moment of hugging. I just, you just take a moment. Although we go fast, if I needed to pull out of that and not carry that same emotion into the next scene, then I get that moment.
2: If you have just tuned in, we're talking with Renee Lawless, who stars as Katherine Cryer on Tyler Perry's hit drama, The Haves and the Have-Nots. Um, you mentioned how much you respect and enjoy working with Tyler Perry. I read that he likes to hire theater actors. Yes, he does. projects.
1: Why do you think that? Well, that's how he started. Started, you know, with all the shows he wrote about Medea. Now, most of his stage plays, Medea, are in them, and they still are. He's still got a successful Medea run uh, going around the country. So, he has a great deal of respect, I think, for their work
2: ethic. Is that different from TV actors?
1: There are many television actors who have never done on stage that cannot go back to stage. Having to do the same thing eight shows a week or the pros its not, it's not a negative. It's just a different. It's, I think it's the technique that we bring we're about how we learn our lines, about how we work. Doesn't mean that someone who doesn't have a theater background doesn't have that a good work ethic, but it's just something that he's familiar with and he knows how to use that language. Plus, our show, we are allowed... Unlike a lot of other shows, although we stay pretty much true to script, we are allowed some bit of improvisation. Not to mention um, Mr. Perry Well, sometimes we'll be in the middle of a scene and he'll throw out a whole whole different set of lines that we have to ingest and repeat in character on the spot. And he knows he can get that from us
2: so many people associate Tyler Perry with outrageous comedy. Is he funny or lighthearted or very serious within the context of this intense kind of Um, storyline?
1: Yes. (laughs) Okay, Medea does not come, I I try to tell people all the time, Medea does not make an appearance ever on her set. There's probably one time she almost, spoke up but no that's what um, we want to know when we're in the throes of it it's business. Now, that doesn't mean he's mean. It's just, it's business. Let's get this done. Now, that being said, he does joke around with the crew often. And God help if there's a brand new PA or a brand new young crew maker, oh, crew, no. crewman on What's the set. What's the is, initiation? The crew just waits because he will do something that will humiliate them Aww. and embarrass them. It's, it's an initiation. And then we all clap. I mean, it's literally like... But they haven't done anything, but he'll call them out. He'll say, like, why did you put that piece of tape there or whatever? They're doing their job. And it's just it's hysterical. And you just know when you got a newbie coming on, oh Lord, it's gonna happen sometime. When's it gonna what's it gonna be? He's really, I think as long as we've gotten on since we've kind of got this going, he's a lot more lighthearted on set than I think he was in the very beginning because he was, you know, getting into the swing of it. But it depends. He's like, you know, he's a human being. There's some days. He's going to be lovely and nice and wonderful, but he's not the day to have a major conversation with, you know, right. and then some days he'll sit there and joke with you. It depends. You
2: it know? sounds like it is a
1: lot of mutual respect on set. This is not only the best company, the best, best boss I've ever had, the best company I've ever worked for. It's just the mutual respect of everyone down to the cleaning lady, to the to the president and to Tyler himself. It is evident permeates everything, it's home.
2: Actor Renee Lawless, after eight seasons on the Oprah Winfrey Network, The Haves and the Have-Nots, wrapped up this summer, but the show is still streaming on YouTube TV and Amazon Prime. Coming up, Artscape 2021, the Georgia State University film that features students using Atlanta street art as a stage. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Dedicated students with something to say are featured in the film Artscape 2021. The project was created by students from Georgia State University using Atlanta street art as a stage for a mix of spoken word and theatrical scenes on subjects including the pandemic, social inequality, and the Black Lives Matter movement. The film will air on our TV station, ATL PBA this Saturday at 6pm. Joining me now via Zoom, Susan G. Reed, Professor of Practice in Acting and Directing at GSU with actor and GSU student Nadine Banton Brown. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much for having us.
4: When did
2: the idea of Artscape 2021 come about?
4: I had been thinking of the idea of creating performances using street art for a while. And then I was charged last summer going into fall with coming up with some opportunities To give students a chance to perform within the pandemic. So we knew that we were not going to necessarily be doing indoor performances, obviously, at that point. And so at It circled back around sort of this notion and Atlanta is such a wonderful atmosphere for street art. There's art everywhere you turn here in the city. It's so fantastic. And it's one of the reasons that I, I love being down in the city and just exploring and seeing you'll turn a corner and there'll be some sort of fantastic artwork. And so I knew that we would be able to use Atlanta street art and sort of thought, wouldn't this be a great way to create an opportunity to perform in a safe atmosphere by using our natural stage that's all around us in the city of Atlanta?
2: I think it was a great idea. How many students worked on the project?
4: We had about 20 students that were performing in this, and then we also had some GSU alum that were helping us as well. So there were about 25 people, artists that were working on this all together.
2: How long did the project take to create?
4: We didn't have as much time as I might have liked. And I only say that from the standpoint that When we decided to do it, we had no script. Literally all we had was a bunch of students that were excited about performing and being involved in this opportunity. So we gathered the volunteers and the students that were interested Last fall really going into December and didn't start actually working on the script until January, and we had shot this piece by March so again it was a pretty pretty short period of time between choosing the street art, which the students did. So we asked them to go out and take pictures of street art around Atlanta that they loved and wanted to use for the backdrop for the stages. They did that, the students then voted on the street art that they were most interested in. And then we had actually divided up students into writers, actors, musicians, taking on different roles in the piece And so we started doing that writing in January and February, and then we're rehearsing in late February and shooting in March. So again, it was a pretty tight time frame. Yeah.
2: What kind of conversations took place with the students before you filmed?
4: In the most wonderful of ways, the street art actually started a lot of our conversations. And because I think that all of us have been so deeply affected by everything that's happened in our world in the last 18 months or so. There was a lot of sort of pent up, I think, emotion and this rawness to the students and to our environment. So when we then introduced this notion of creating art using these pieces of street art, I just feel like it sort of came out of everybody, you know, just out of their pores, out of their bodies, out of their hearts, this message. And really, the writers were given some vocabulary words as sort of jumping off points with the street art, and then they created the pieces from that.
2: Nadine, would you tell us about the street art that inspired you?
0: oh yes i was actually fortunate enough to perform in front of one of the ones that i i offered as a as a street art piece that i thought was really significant and powerful which was the woman with the orange background that said fearless yeah and i of course i saw it and the first thing i thought was this is such an an important piece for me living in here in the Atlanta area and being a a Black immigrant woman, right? And I thought about really kind of the environment that I was in and the inspirations that I was getting from Black women doing really great things um, here in Atlanta. And I thought that this would just be a great kind of representation of me and of course of just kind of what is bubbling in the city.
2: Hmm. Let's talk about the poem, your poem, Fearless. Would you describe the experience conveyed in the narrative?
0: Oh, sure. I'd love to. When I first read the piece, I was instantly transported to times in my life where I have felt kind of an outcast or just overlooked or ignored and I think even at the time that I read it, I think there was a, an, an incident that happened quite recent that made me really connect to the piece. And I just imagined myself on a platform, on a train station, you know, a crowded train station and how this person kind of just didn't see me and pushed past me and didn't even acknowledge me. And I held on to the feelings that that came with of not just anger but just a a a proudness of just kind of standing firm in what i believe in and of who i am and the desire to be seen and to be heard and i think that that was what i wanted to convey during the poem and through direction um, through susan g reed we kind of honed in a little bit on the notion of embodying that and somehow just making that a part of the body, you know, as I'm describing what is happening. And, and, and that to me felt, it felt right. It was such a small thing, a simple gesture almost, He brushed past my arm, and for a minute, it seemed like maybe I misunderstood. Like, it was a kindness. Like, I'm here to stand by your side. Like, I'm here to protect you. Like, you matter. But it was not. It was was a brush past that said, you don't belong. You're being dismissed. You are insignificant. You are invisible. And in that moment, I made an adjustment. I decided to rewrite it, that gesture, that brush past. I decided to take it back, to reclaim it. Not with anger or animosity, just with words and action. Very simply, excuse me, I said as I brushed past him, my full body taking over that space, taking it back. Our eyes met. He didn't expect it. He didn't expect me to fight back, if you can even call it fighting back. I saw that he felt the sting. I claimed the space.
2: I love the physical experience, which, as you convey, can seem so slight, almost easy to dismiss initially. But how that becomes this metaphor for being ignored or not even perceived as being there, and is outright rude. The spoken word performance speaks on two levels. You talk about the spaces in which women are excluded and the spaces from which black people have been excluded historically. How can this generation of Black women and men reclaim those spaces?
0: That is one thing that I have a lot of hope for. I think that what we're seeing, especially in these spaces of art and creativity, that we are seeing more Black people expressing themselves in a very authentic way. And I think that that is the key to inspiring younger generations and to give them a voice of their own you know i am a non-traditional student here at georgia state and so there was a notion of you know i'm a little bit older than the other students and i was also getting something from a lot of the, the other students that were on set it was a a communication and a good communication, I was able to see some of the things that the younger generation happened to be experiencing. And I think that that should continue, that there is a particular kind of communication that happens across generations and across race as well, that happens in creative spaces that we have to keep alive.
2: In addition to themes such as the pandemic, social inequality, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Susan, can you explain how the film addresses intergenerational conflict and differences? There are more discussions.
4: I wonder what this piece would have been had we not been doing this in the moment. This is very much to me a snapshot of where we were last January to March in our lives. And I think for so many of the students, what you felt was this this sense of wanting to sort of explode to exit, to pull out, to get away this distancing And so for many of these pieces you could even see where students were directly talking about their relationships with their parents with their family members and their responses to that as well. It was so amazing to see the students ability those artists those young artists were able to look again at that art and then really connect with it in their own very individual way that was unique to their experience and their experience in this particular moment in time. And so there was very much this intergenerational sense in terms of the ultimate material that they they wrote and performed in it.
2: Nadine, hearing you speak about being slightly older than some of the other students also made me wonder Did you find it therapeutic to participate in this?
0: Oh, absolutely. I found it therapeutic on so many levels. Number one, previous to the semester that we filmed in, I noticed that there were students that were in my class that just wanted to perform. They just wanted to be on the stage and they found themselves in classes that would typically be a way for them to express themselves and they weren't able to. And so not only did I receive some therapy from just being able to perform, but I but I actually got a lot from seeing other people perform too. It was also therapeutic for me. You know, I'd spent some years away from the stage and this was me kind of coming back. And I found peace in in knowing exactly that this was something that I, have a desire to do but that there was a need to express myself that I forgot that I needed yeah this was therapeutic on so many levels but then also it was therapeutic just to be able to have a particular voice in this piece that said so much about how I had been feeling
2: well you convey it most powerfully. Thank you. Susan, in addition to directing the film, you created a series of short commentary. Would you tell us a bit about Artistic Voices?
4: Sure. One of the amazing things about this is that this was a group of people that did not meet until we showed up on set for our three days to actually shoot this piece. So everything was done independently or via Zoom. We had our rehearsals on Zoom. We did edits to the scripts on Zoom. We did all of our work via Zoom. And so because of that, it was a really unusual process for us. And those interlude pieces that you referred to, I actually, had a series of questions that I asked all of the performers to respond to and then took their answers and pieced their answers together to create those. So they didn't actually say them all together in that exact way, but they were all their own voices that I then you know, put together within the confines of that. And we wanted, we called those the man on the street interviews. We wanted there to be sort of a a way to connect the entire piece together. And that's one of the reasons that we had created that.
2: During such a bleak time, it's amazing the positivity you achieved in Artscape 2021. Congratulations. And thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Thank you so much, Lois, and I I just can't speak highly enough of all of the members of Artscape 2021, and you're right. It was filmed during a dark time, but you never would have known that, and it was this joyous group. We even have some footage sort of at the end of the piece where... A p- People started pulling out non-traditional instruments and singing and rapping and just it's a group that you would have thought had been together for a year and they spent just a matter of hours together and they brought so much love and so much joy and so much kindness. I think it filled all of us up in a huge way.
2: Georgia State University professor of practice in acting and directing Susan G. Reed she was joined by her student, Nadine Banton Brown. The film Artscape 2021 will be shown on our TV station, ATL PBA, this Saturday, September 11th at 6 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Come From Away, the musical shares the inspiring story of a small town in Newfoundland that cared for over 7,000 stranded passengers after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City There, you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.